If you would, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. While you're turning there, there's a couple of things. Um, number one, we do have, a couple of, several years ago, we had uh, basically uh, rubber bracelets to remind us to pray for those who are persecuted, and we have those again. So if you are interested in those, they're, they're free. They're right up here, and uh, come and uh, pick one up. I consider myself very fortunate when I was in sixth grade, I read... Richard Rembrandt's book called Tortured for Christ, and then when I was in seventh grade, I met him. Uh, he had come to Hawaii, and, and uh, it was a, a very uh, good experience. Once it, there were several events in my life that kind of awakened me to the reality of life, because um, I was under a false impression that bad things didn't really happen to Christians, or if it did, it wasn't that bad, uh, and meeting him was uh, pretty incredible. Uh, he looked like a man who had been beaten and by the way he had been tortured for 17 years was how long he was there and uh, the reason why they beat the bottom of your feet you got more nerve endings there than anywhere else it's unbelievably sensitive uh, and so that really causes an enormous amount of pain uh, when someone is beat that way so um, that was it's important for us to remember them uh, to pray for them and that is their number one desire is that Christians around the world pray for them uh, and that they would, re- and they don't almost always, the desire to be released and freed from beating is not even the top five of their prayer request. They ask that God would give them strength to endure. They ask that they would be faithful to God and His Word, that they would be freed from having any bitterness or hatred towards their uh, torturers, uh, to pray for them to share Christ with their torturers. Uh, and that their tortures would come to know Christ. Uh, it's just really incredible um, when you get an opportunity to speak with, with these individuals. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you once again for your unbelievable grace in our life. And Father, I ask this morning that once again, as always, it is our desire, Lord, to hear from you, to hear and understand what your word says. And so Father, we pray that you'd help us to be not only attentive to what it says, but Lord, that it would be our desire to open our heart to your word, that Father, it may deeply affect us, that we, be, that we may continue to become different people, that we may become more like your son, Christ. And so with this, Father, we do thank you and ask these things in his name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after the wind. Sometimes you'll read individuals who write about the book of Ecclesiastes and will say that this is a a book that uh, embodies for us what existentialism is. Existentialism is not, it may not necessarily be a philosophy, it's really more of a description uh, of of a kind of uh, where our world is, where we are as individuals. Uh, Over the next several weeks there will be more, some articles in the bulletin that will kind of talk about it a little bit briefly uh, to help you get a handle uh, on what that is, and uh, you may be able to identify a great deal of it. You will, it'll help you 
grasp why the world is the way that it is and why the world responds the way they respond to various things. And so that is given to us here, this existentialism, this, again, his angst, this desire. To, he, he wants there to be meaning in life, and it seems to elude him, and, and he reveals some things here that are really very important because Solomon finds out and he discovers the mysterious reason or sources of his disappointment, his disappointment in the things that he is pursuing uh, as he seeks to find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. He humbly acknowledges that because he had forsaken God, and I believe that's what we have here, is that Solomon, who was the one who asked God to give him wisdom, that he would rule God's people rightly, that through the years this man drifted from the Lord uh, to where the Lord was kind of basically put on the back burner. Uh, as that took place, uh, he went through several uh, things in his life as he thought about his life and then began to pursue things really trying to fill his life uh, with the various pursuits that he had, looking for meaning and fulfillment and contentment. And, of course, he was unable to find that. And so here he uh, acknowledges that because he had forsaken God, who is the giver of all things, therefore he couldn't find pleasure and happiness and satisfaction. Those things, he couldn't find it in anything that he was pursuing. So Solomon, or Koheleth, as we've learned to call him, had clearly noticed that sinful man, that's the man who ignores God or the man who rejects God, cannot make himself happy. He can't do it by eating. He can't do it by drinking. He can't do it by any other indulgence that he can imagine. Because true happiness and pleasure are gifts from God. And when God denies these gifts... There is no mortal effort that we can make that's going to procure them. When God appoints grief, there are no riches, no merriments, if you would, no artificial joy, no pretending of cheerfulness that would be able to remove it from us. When you look at verse 25, again, he makes that statement clearly that I've been talking about. Again, he says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? He's asking this rhetorical question. Now, that's from the ESV. In the New King James, it's slightly different. He says, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? And so there's a, a little bit of discussion. There's a few differences in some of the various texts of the Old Testament. But when you kind of put them all together, I, I believe the full thought or the full intention of verse 25 is really this. Solomon is saying is, no one can compete with me in this. And if I then with all of my opportunities of enjoyment, failed utterly to obtain solid pleasure of my own making apart from God, who else can? That's what he's saying. No one had, been, no one had the resources that he had to be able to pursue these things without there being any obstacles. There was nothing that stood in his way of achieving his goals, again, whether it was building or pursuing, as he said, wine, uh, the various pleasures of the world. There were no obstacles. And he indulged in all those things freely and as often as he desired to. And in the end, there was nothing there. It was empty. Many, many people experience that in our day and age. They don't have to have unlimited resources to pursue these things. Whatever they've pursued, in and of themselves, they do not bring happiness. That is why I believe it is so important 
uh, for ourselves and in particular for our friends, our loved ones, people that you know, people that you work with, when they seem to be going through a down moment in life, do not try to ease their pain. We want to comfort them with the truth, but you don't want to take away what they're going through. What they're going through is important. If a man or a woman is going to learn that this life by itself, meaning apart from God, is unsatisfying, they need to learn that. How else will they see their need for God? And so too often what happens is we make a mistake because we we live in a culture that is very accustomed to that it being our number one goal to immediately alleviate pain of all kind from whatever anybody's experiencing. Whether that is mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain, whatever it is, we want to immediately eliminate it. Now, I'm, I'm not in favor of us just suffering to suffer. But there is meaning in pain. God does use it. And sometimes, maybe it's often, we jump the gun and we move way too quickly to try to remove pain from the life of the individual. We need to be there to help them through it. But we need to help them maybe at times to think about it, about what's going on. So when we ask what's going on, we shouldn't maybe be looking for an immediate remedy to rescue them from the pain. But maybe what we should do when they tell us what's going on, we can bring more questions. In a loving and kind way, we can bring more questions. Because their soul is at stake. Sometimes it's because of fear on our part. Sometimes because of maybe ignorance of how to handle the situation. Maybe it's because of, uh, when I say fear, I mean a fear of being rejected, that if we bring out the gospel, if we bring out our belief in God, that somehow they might reject us. Uh, it may be um, maybe a sense of shame that, that, can, that can go along with that. So there may be different things that may drive us or motivate us to handle certain situations in the way that we do. We need to seek God's wisdom. We need to pray and ask God to help us. Too often we jump into a situation much too quickly. I want to stop for a moment, though, because I want us to kind of back up and look at one of the themes that Solomon develops through the book. And that is the title of the message, which is Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem is usually translated from the Latin as seize the day. As I was reading about that phrase and that translation... There are some Latin scholars who I guess are much more exacting and demanding of proper translation. And someone wrote that they may seize you by the throat if you say that carpe diem uh, simply means to seize the day. I don't see much of the difference. But anyway, uh, they say the word carpe translate literally as pluck with a particular reference to the picking of fruit. So a more accurate rendition is to enjoy the day and pluck the day when it is ripe. And I'm like, seize the day, same thing. But anyway, I don't want to get in a fight over that. But, but that is a very good phrase. And sometimes we use that phrase because we want to maybe communicate or instill in others the importance of what? Each day. Of each moment. Because each day and each moment is important. And it is important. Now, when it comes to enjoying the present... That can also be a negative response to things. And I believe in Ecclesiastes, it's not a negative response. Uh, When Solomon observes what he observes about life, I don't think it's a statement of despair. Such as, I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 15 and 32. 
It says, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And that is the view of many non-believers. We're going to die anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. I might as well just pursue whatever I want and get as much enjoyment in this life as I want because this is it. That is not what Solomon is talking about. So you can have two individuals who believe that we need to seize the day and that we need to pursue enjoyment of life. But for two very different reasons. I do think that through the years, off and on, in different pockets, that Christians have missed out on that. The idea of seizing the day and enjoying life. We need to enjoy life. It is a gift from God. Obviously, we're not talking about running off and you, are, you become a person who only lives for the moment and never think about God and spiritual things in the future and all the rest. But I do, do not think that the proper response to life is somehow to go in the opposite direction and, in a sense, not enjoy life. It is true, again, on the one hand, that for the sinner, this is all that's left uh, because even in pursuing these things, there really is no happiness anyway. They're not going to find contentment. They're not going to find fulfillment. Because Solomon says, apart from God, these things in and of themselves cannot bring happiness. But they are clearly gifts from God. Those things and happiness and joy. Now, I have, I have listed there in your notes, I believe, there are several what we call carpe diem passages. And those are listed there if you want just to read them uh, and look at them. I would also say... And encourage you to particularly look at the context of how they are used. Uh, But nonetheless, just so you know that this is a theme that kind of runs through the book. But again, eating, drinking, and enjoying. That phrase, that compilation of three things kind of encompasses this, the daily living. The daily things that we encounter as we live life. There's the idea of enjoying your labor. And those are viewed again very positively as being a gift from God. And they resonate with the goodness of creation which if you go back to the book of Genesis and read carefully what God says, beginning in chapter 1, I believe we can come to a right understanding of how God wants us to live life on the earth. Albert Barnes has written a uh, commentary on all the books of the Bible, and he says this about Genesis 1. He says, The creation story in Genesis 1, right up to the creation of man, is one long account of how God ensured and fashioned this space for man to live on earth. Now, that would be a very obvious observation, but you would be maybe surprised, unless you thought about it, that there are many individuals who think that's an arrogant phrase. Not an arrogant phrase of Christians, but that's an arrogant phrase of human beings. That, that the Christian belief that God has so created and arranged the world for, for us to live in, Everything is set up for us to live in the world, to enjoy the world, all of us. They think, oh, that's just that we are being arrogant. And those who kind of believe that we're, most of them believe we're no better than just an animal. We've evolved into this other species, so to speak. And so therefore, if we think that we're better than animals, that's arrogance. It's not. It's just what God has decreed. We understand creation. Uh, But that is part of their philosophical foundation for the various things they pursue. So from the very beginning, man apart from God is in rejection of what God has said. Even things that, that, are, that you might even say, well, that's, you would think that the person would want to, would like that. You would like that aspect, that human life is unique, human life is special, that the world was created for man. But 
they reject that. But it is a Christian view because it comes from Scripture. The story of the covenant that God has made with man. It's also the history of Israel's conquest of the Lamb by the will of God. And it's settling in the Lamb by the same faithfulness and goodness. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament generally have an extraordinary about to say about such things as man's dwelling, food, drink, sleep, labor, rest, health, and sickness. Nor are these statements incidental. They are uh, not overshadowed by something that is greater uh, or something that is more decisive as far as being a, a more important issue. The carpe diem passages here in Ecclesiastes and throughout the scripture celebrate creaturely human life as God has made it. Eating, drinking, enjoying your work are an expression of the peace that God intends for his creation and humankind in particular to experience. So God is into our life. He's into it. He has, if you just kind of step back for a moment, why do you think God has given us the ability to see all the colors that we see? What purpose would that serve? We don't need it to survive. God has given us the ability to have all kinds, our taste buds are incredible. It is so great. There's some stuff I really enjoy. I just, you know, green curry. Oh. Yesterday, my wife and I ate at uh, Cherie's nuclear chicken yes that was a special and it was great we enjoyed it and God has given us God is pleased that we enjoy that that we enjoy eating that we enjoy the foods God wants us to enjoy it it's not just we don't just eat to survive that's a part of it but man it's a great part of it sometimes we enjoy it too much but we all know about that sleep is great there was a time when I had a, I, there was a period of time when I had a resting heart rate of 180. It's pretty dangerous, but anyway, it was a weird time. My thyroid was kind of going berserk. But anyway, that went on for several years until they kind of figured out what was going on, so they killed my thyroid. So when they did all that, they finally got my heart back down to normal. And after about a two-year period, on this one night I went to sleep, I had not experienced sleep like that in two years because I was pretty much waking up almost every hour because of all the stuff that was going on. So I, I slept the night. Man, I woke up and I said, this is awesome. I felt so great. You don't know how great sleep is until you go for a couple of years that really give you to sleep to the night. And then when you can and you get that deep sleep, wow, it's something to celebrate. Uh, and so anyway, so these are great things that God has given to us. So I want to read to you verses 24 through 26 again of Ecclesiastes 2. I'm going to throw in some kind of explanations briefly, kind of along the way, so we can get a good handle of what's being communicated here by Solomon. So again in verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in this toil. Again, that's a correct statement. These everyday acts in everyday life provide true enjoyment. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So again, the obvious, these things are given to us by God himself. They're not accidental or anything else. God, in his sovereignty, has providentially given us these things. And again, remember that apart from God, these gifts, all these things that we get to pursue, in and of themselves will not provide joy or maybe we should, when you see the word joy, a lot of times we should think of true happiness. All right, that's, that's God's desire, that we experience and possess true happiness. 
Verse 25, again, for apart from him, you who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So again, for the one who acknowledges and commits himself to God. So again, this is not just an intellectual acknowledgement. The idea here about the one who pleases God is that he acknowledges the existence of God, but he acknowledges the existence of God as God. In other words, he doesn't just view God as being just another being, not just another person, not an elevated person, but as God, the creator of the universe. So, that, so therefore, the individual understands that to acknowledge God as God means you are committed to him, you surrender to him, all things come from him. That would be the normal, right, and proper response to God. So the one who acknowledges and commits himself to God, God gives us gifts. He gives us the gifts that we need to unlock the joy and happiness and fulfillment that everyday acts can provide. I am convinced that it is absolutely necessary that we as Christians, that we exude the greatest amount of joy and happiness and fulfillment so that everybody can see it. That when they ask us how we are doing, life is grand. Even if we're going through difficulties, life is grand because I know who God is. That is a gift that God has given us. Again, he has given to us wisdom. We have understanding of why things are the way they are. We understand why and how God works. We understand our purpose and our place and what God has given us. We have knowledge of the things that God has given us, as well as how to enjoy the things that God has given us. But also God has given to us joy. So we may not have, we're not going to be giddy every moment, but there is joy in our life as believers. The world is miserable. And too often we act like the world. It doesn't mean that we don't enter into their misery with them. The Bible even tells us as believers that we are to weep with each other as well as uh, laugh with each other and be joyful for each other. Absolutely. We need to rejoice together. But even in those moments where we are grieving, there is no despair. There is no despondency. And we can say that life is still grand. Because for you and me as believers, this life doesn't end. Death has got no hold over us. Death has got no hold over those that we love that die. If that doesn't give us joy, something is wrong somewhere. Period. And so this is what Solomon is revealing to us. This is what he's discovering. So again, remember that God gives us the gifts that we need to unlock everyday existence so that it brings us a great deal of joy. We don't have to go pursuing more of anything. We don't, we don't need anything extravagant to get joy or to get true happiness. What I need is the gift from God to unlock these things. However, to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only, and it's only for them, to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity, striving after the wind. The sinner, again the one who has put God on the back burner, refuses to truly acknowledge God. They will work here and now, and what they gain will be given to us in the end. The meek will inherit the earth. Repeatedly in church history, Christians have been tempted to devalue the richness of creation as if it would somehow be more spiritual to live a life that is devoid of beauty, of good things, of music, of literature, 
of painting, of color, and so forth. It is as, it is as if bare simplicity and barrenness, maybe even ugliness, were somehow more pleasing to God. Behind this idea is the conviction that the spiritual is all that matters, and that the physical, therefore, is at best only of secondary value. And that's untrue. That is not true. So movies, painting, photography, music, all those things are considered as as being optional or somehow extravagant, and they're not. They are not. They'd be a part of our life, part of our full existence that God has given to us. You don't need to be racked by guilt to enjoy those things. Whatever hobbies you have that bring you joy, if it doesn't violate the scripture, you should be thankful to God that you have those things to pursue. You like to go fishing? Gift from God. How great is that? I've been able to do the kind of fishing I did in Hawaii. It's when you get a spear and you go in the water and hunt them, but you can't see anything out here. So I don't do that. But it's just, it's fantastic. It is great. So this belief that somehow barrenness and ugliness and somehow that the spiritual is much more important than the physical is nonsense. According to Paul, it is heresy. Because in the end, it's a denial of what? The goodness of creation and the goodness of the creator. It has sin that has ruined and marred these things. Not God. When God created these things, he said they were good. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. Let me read to you a passage that I think is vital for us to grasp and understand. 1 Timothy 4, I'll begin reading in verse 1. But we will uh, pay particular attention to the last two verses of, of the reading, which is verses 4 and 5. Beginning in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So again, we have individuals who say, if you want to be spiritual, you need to stay away from certain kinds of food. And yet Paul says, these are foods that were created by God. They were created by God for us to receive them. We are to receive them with thanksgiving, meaning we're thankful to God, not thankful to whoever. Um, we're thankful to God by those who what? Believe and know the truth. It goes right back to Ecclesiastes, to those things that God has given us. Wisdom, knowledge, joy. Verse 4. For everything created by God is good. Nothing's left out. Everything. Secondly, nothing is to be rejected. You bring me an apple pie, I will not reject it. I'm thankful to God for that. We get together and have steak. We will not reject that either. It says, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, again, this thanksgiving is not just some general form of thanksgiving. You know, they have these, uh, I guess they're called, they're all called reality shows, but there's these uh, several reality shows about people who are living up in Alaska, trying to live off the land. And so these these people, most of them are pagans, and uh, there's no Christianity. So they go go hunting, and they'll they'll kill an animal uh, so they can feed their family. And then what they would do is they would kneel by this dead animal and put their hand on it. And I don't know who they're talking to, but it's not to God. Maybe it's to nature, as if nature's a person. And they say, we just want to thank uh, whoever, they don't name anybody, um, for this animal, for giving of its life that we can live. And so I guess, 
and they talk about how their fathers taught them or they just think it's important to, to be thankful. Well, that's good. So let's just think about that for a moment. Because a dead animal isn't very much aware that you're thankful to them. And they couldn't understand you if they're just they're bleeding to death. We have to be thankful to somebody. We're, we're to be thankful to God. So this is not just a general thankfulness, though I guess that makes people more polite. But this is in particular being thankful to God. Why? Verse 5 tells us, for it, everything that God created, the things we are not to reject if, if received with thanksgiving, for it is made, what? Holy by the word of God and prayer. John Calvin says this, Paul's doctrine proceeds on this principle, that there is no good thing, the possession of which is lawful, unless our conscience testifies that it is lawfully ours, and which of us would venture to claim for himself a single grain of wheat if he were not taught by the word of God that he is the heir of the world? Common sense pronounces that the wealth of the world is naturally intended for our use. Now, there's two things about that statement that are important. Number one, that is, that is a statement about human beings, about humanity. Okay? So the wealth of the world created by God is naturally, as we can tell, intended for the use of human beings. But, since dominion of the world was taken from us in Adam, okay, so when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God had given them dominion over the earth uh, to rule the earth. Many, when they look at that theologically, see that was taken away at that moment and given over to Satan. Temporarily, but given over to Satan. So everything that we touch, that would be as humankinds that are unbelievers, everything that we touch of the gifts of God is defiled by our pollution. And it is unclean to us until God graciously comes to our aid and by engrafting us into his Son constitutes us anew to be lords of the world that we may lawfully use as our own all the wealth which he supplies us. Hence, it ought to be inferred that the use of all the gifts of God is unclean unless it is accompanied by true knowledge and calling on the name of God. And so then he adds that it is a beastly way of eating when we sit down at table without any prayer, when we have eaten to the full and we depart in utter forgetfulness of God. So as we pray, when we eat, to thank God for the food, that should not just be just something we just do without thinking. We should be truly grateful because we are dependent upon God. Let me read to you a couple of other passages very rapidly uh, that says really the same thing that Koheleth tells us in our passage. 2 Peter 3.13, but, but according to his uh, promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is interesting that when the Bible speaks of our, the eternal order, our future, it's a new heaven and a new what? Earth. A place especially designed by God for man. For man to enjoy God. To see all the greatness of God. To be provided for by God. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with him and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We look forward to all of that. We're going to experience that. It's not just a nice poetic way of saying that things are going to be great in heaven. This is a reality. He's telling us that what we experience now, many of the bad things we experience, what he lists here, he is going to personally do away with all those things. There's a time coming when that would be done. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes these words, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember, Paul was beaten several times. Paul had learned to be content when he was wealthy and when he had nothing. Those that we prayed for this morning who go through maybe decades of suffering, seeing their family members tortured and killed, this verse is of particular importance to them. They believe this by faith. They believe what God says. And so their faith is built on this and what they, they may not repeat in the exact same words, but this is what they consider, what they think about, what has affected their life. That no matter how great the sufferings of this present time are, and for them it is immense, compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us, it's nothing. Then he says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope that is seen is not hope, but uh, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And again, we know that in the New Testament, when it speaks of hope, that's not wishful thinking, it's that it is that which is guaranteed to us by God himself. So the promise of the glory of the earth to come underlines the significance and the value of all that God has made for our enjoyment here and now. So then as Christians, as we grow as Christians, as we, as we live this life that God has given to us in thankfulness, we then do get a taste of heaven now. Because these are things that God has given us and we will have these things more so in the age to come. So then again, when we lose a wife or a husband and there is great grief, yes, if they are believers, you will be reunited with them. But it should not be sadness that they will no longer be your wife or your husband because you and them will be closer than you've ever been before. But we'll have that kind of relationship with everyone. In the same way that if you, if you have a, what we call a fairly good working family, and when you get a family gathering, you kind of like being together, and how, it's just great with your children, your grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, and everybody kind of gets along, and you just enjoy being together, and there's a closeness there. How great is that if that could be magnified, not only in its intensities, but numerically? 
I never forget there was, I was at a, we, we've only had, I think, one or two. It was kind of a family reunion with my family, and there was someone who was there, a guest who was there. And this person was kind of disturbed by what they saw and, and took someone in the family aside and said, is, is this always like this when your family gets together? I said, well, yeah, why? He said, I've never seen anything like this. I'm used to people arguing and yelling and talking bad about, you know, families, talking bad about each other. But that's what Christians, and I'm very grateful, most of my family, a very high percentage are believers. And so that would be expected. So again, we have so much to look forward to. But it's not that we just, oh, well, you know, I just kind of put up with, the, with whatever until, until I die or until the Lord comes. No, it's not that. We are to enjoy it. In fact, I think you should make a special effort to enjoy it. Redemption will be complete. It will not be complete until our human life is restored to its full delight and the wonder of God's creation. So then, when you're asked today by either the cook or the waitress uh, at the restaurant, how'd you like your meal? You say, man, it is awesome. It is so great. And just you can tell them, when you're thankful to God, everything just tastes better. It does. And if it, if, it's, uh, if it didn't taste good, you could say, I, I tasted the uh, effects of sin today. This was no good. It stunk. But I'm still rejoicing. <laughs> uh, because God has given us many other wonderful meals, and there are many good meals to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your love. And Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give to us. And for those of us, Father, who believe you've given to us wisdom, knowledge, and joy that help to unlock the joys of life. Father, for some, either we've forgotten that or we have kind of moved away from that and we've allowed cynicism and bitterness, the failure of others, maybe our own sin, to steal the joy. And we ask, Lord, you would forgive us. Forgive us, Father, for not remembering the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember the great marvelous truths that are in Scripture. And I do know, Lord, that there may be some here who have never really had this. And perhaps, Lord, it's because they have never trusted Christ. They remain outside of the family of God. They have not embraced the gospel. They are like many who have Put God or the idea of God on the back burner, pretty much rejecting what the scripture says. Pray, Lord, that if they do not yet experience a great deal of angst in life, I pray that they would. I ask, Lord, for those who are experiencing that, that, Lord, you put a spotlight on it, that the sense of meaninglessness and a lack of joy would be highlighted in their life, even be intensified. We only ask this, Lord, that they may be driven to you, driven to the cross, and they would believe in Christ. Again, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation that many of us experience today. You are a wonderful God, and we are grateful for all that you've given us. But also, Father, we are even more grateful for what is in store for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.